This is the Director's Club Podcast. Jim here with a quick mention of what's new over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Of course, we have Patrick Ripple, a name you should be familiar with right now. Um, he's got his, his delightful horror commentary podcast, Tracks of the Damned. Episodes 2 and 3 are up and ready for your consumption. Fright Night and The Mummy's Tomb. Um, they're both on nowplayingnetwork.net, so go grab both of those, particularly for the interesting subtext regarding the, uh, let's say, sexual proclivity of the Chris Sarandon character. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's something else. Um, and I've yet to hear The Mummy's Tomb, but I'll exhume that episode really soon. Also, I want to mention that uh, I, I mentioned this last episode for, for the Scorsese episode, but... Um, Supporting Characters has a great episode with Joseph Gervaisi, like I said. But stay tuned in about a week, because I'm making an appearance in which I reveal a lot about my love of film podcasting, and probably said things I'll regret later. (laughs) Anyway, it's a very personal conversation with a terrific podcaster and friend, and I continue to be proud of all of the work from Directors Club stalwart Bill Ackerman, a frequent contributor to this show, but he is consistently hitting home runs on supporting characters. Also, we have Jim Hankey. He's another great voice there on the network. Give him a five-star review on iTunes, because he deserves it, much like everybody else. Uh, his latest involves a record collector who is also who is also a casting director for films such as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So that should be a, a really uh, interesting incentive to go check that episode out. I'm going to be checking that one out. Um, come tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that as always. And the latest movie Madness has a straightforward discussion with Hitfix's very own Drew McWeeny about two things. The new Ghostbusters remake, reboot, refranchise, uh, and bullshit. So listen to a conversation about the new Ghostbusters film as well as a conversation about bullshit. So yeah, Eric Childress over at Movie Madness talking with a great uh, guest terrific episode as always so for all of this and more go to nowplayingnetwork.net for a wide variety of podcasts surrounding both film and music and for the episode that you're about to hear uh there was a number of agnes varda films we simply could not find or get to i believe we mentioned that in the conversation but you know we plan to return to her career in the future to talk about titles such as the young girls turn 25 101 nights one sings the other doesn't Kung Fu Master and the Creatures, as well as several documentaries we uh, just could not get to. Lead busy lives, but we'll get there, we promise. So have no fear if your favorite wasn't discussed this time around. 
But um, I guess I did our best with some of her more acclaimed work, some of her notable work that's available uh, via the Criterion Collection. And my guest is definitely one of my new favorites, none other than the terrific Kate Blair from the very popular Alfred Hitchcock episode that we did earlier this year. She'll be returning once again in the near future because I really do value her opinion and her perspective on film is truly delightful and insightful in every single way. So um, get those ears propped. I don't know what that means, but enjoy the show. Here's my conversation with Kate Blair on the French New Wave godmother herself, Agnes Fart. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and with me we have a very special returning guest that um, made a great first impression when we first did this, and I gotta say, there was a lot of thumbs up for the Hitchcock episode. So, her blog, Selective Viewing, is uh, partially how we connected, and we have amazingly have had a number of mutual friends over the years. True. But <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um... But welcome back. Oh, thank the you. The great Kate Blair. <laughs> I almost made you sound like a like a vaudevillian or circus act. Come see the amazing Kate Blair. Or in this Kate case... Kate the Great. Yeah, yeah, Kate the Great. Or in this case, you'll get to hear the amazing Kate Blair. So, um, I'm happy to have you back on as we embark on a director that um, I was completely unfamiliar with. I mean, I've heard of her. And I certainly have heard her name mentioned um, when it comes to the birth of the French New Wave movement, but I just never got around to seeing any of her films, despite knowing that several of them have been highly acclaimed over the years. Um, and that would be Agnes Varda, who is we, who we are focusing on today. Um, and this episode will likely be shorter than the Hitchcock episode, and it's not because we don't have enough to say, but, um, you know, she has a, a filmography that's a little less intimidating, I might say. And there was also a number of titles we could not find or um, get to for this episode, but it's very likely that we'll come back to her maybe at another time. Yeah, I'll spend some time working on how to get those other ones. Yeah, we all, we both will. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's made all kinds of art, you know, and utilizing so much different types of media, photography, performance, and installation. Like, she's she's a regular Renaissance gal. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And it's it's very difficult to summarize her career. And I wouldn't necessarily think of her as, you know, falling under the auteur umbrella, but she certainly has a style that's all her own. And I think from film to film, it's distinctive. Yeah, I agree. But let's get to it. Um, you know, as I always ask, what was your first experience seeing an Agnes Varda film? One of the few films directed by a woman who is the viewer can spot the different stories about the most of these beautiful chicks, popular singers, or in the few hours she wastes to find out she has cancer, childish behavior, she consults the horoscope, she goes to the fortune teller, she buys the hatch of her husband, she rides throughout the ride of director, Agnes Varda sustains the unfamiliar subjective tones and almost unique in the history of movies. Come on, come on, What a director, Agnes Varda, baby She was married to Jacques Demi, baby The beaches of Agnes, 
Agnes Varda, hell yeah. The cleaners and I happiness, Varda. Agnes Varda is a French director, not just Cleo, nine to five, she is Dynamo. Documentary fiction of the genres from 50s to millennium, career is a long one. Vagabond documentary in the band here. Born in 1928, but she's still here. Always making something, never on vacation. From all across the nation, a show of appreciation. Nobel Vag director, Agnes Varda, baby. Cleo from 5 to 7, Vagabond, baby. Fan of Friends, Kafka, Agnes Varda, hell yeah. Filmmaker extraordinaire. I was in a film class as an undergraduate, so that was like, I don't know, 2007, Ooh. something like that, um, and we, I guess, I think this is probably how a lot of people get introduced to her, it was during a section on the new wave. Sure. Um, and so we watched Cleo from five to seven, um, and I remember totally loving it. Um, but I, I still didn't really understand until a lot later uh, what exactly her relationship to the new wave was and the fact that she sort of predated all of it right. um, didn't really hit me until a lot later um, but yeah it's a great film um, and I'm glad that my film professor showed it to us instead of um, just focusing on Godard and Truffaut and yeah. the other big guys <laughs> Yeah, the, the 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 more notable ones, or not necessarily notable, but just the ones that I feel like are always brought up in like a intro to cinema class or mm-hmm. film history class. Those those guys will come up when it comes to French New Wave. Yeah, and it was an intro class. Um, yeah, so it was pretty cool. It was a lady film professor, so that might have been part of it too. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those too at Purdue. Um, I don't believe she showed us any Varda. I think she did actually show Godard. <laughs> I think that might have been the first time I saw Breathless. Um, yeah, she showed like Mildred Pierce and and Breathless, Blue Velvet, um, the Wuniel short film with the eye mm-hmm. getting split open. I can never remember how to pronounce. Unshan Andalu. Yes, Unshan Andalu. This might be a good time to say that neither of us are really good at French. That's probably true. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, Sorry if we butcher some things. Yeah, I think at this point, especially if you've been listening since the beginning, you know that mispronunciations are kind of a part of the show. Um, but uh, hopefully, just our enthusiasm and just the the discovery of learning—that's kind of one thing I've realized while doing this podcast is that I get to learn something new every time when I talk with somebody or I watch a film or I do some research on the director. It's like, that's the joy of doing this podcast for me. With her debut film, La Pointe Court, which I'm sure is not at all how you pronounce it, but maybe it is. Because <laughs> um, at least that's how... I mean, how would you say the Isla Puente Corte? I don't think so. That sounds Spanish. That's that's what I was thinking. But she, you know, she started out as a photographer, and you can sort of garner that from this debut film. She was always interested in film, but didn't feel like she had the chops. Um, and she was reading a book by Faulkner, I believe, 
mm-hmm. that really inspired her. Uh, and, you know, she was certainly hanging out with a lot of filmmakers at the time and sort of deciding she wanted to put her own stamp on that medium. And she was also spending some days in this French fishing town, which is what the title of this movie is named after. Um, and around that time, she was just more curious about what she could do with the moving image as opposed to just still photography that she had been doing for so long. That's primarily where she, how she paid the bills. But um, with this film, it's a sort of series of vignettes. It's like you get the unhappy couple sort of working through their relationship and you know it's it's very episodic and i kind of like those types of films where you sort of learn about different people um as they thrive in their community yeah um i also like that she used real people from the town yeah and i think she still keeps in touch with them which is really nice yeah i know that's Um, that's cool (laughs) i also didn't realize that no one got paid to do this she managed to get them all to just kind of help her for free um which is how she managed to finance it. I think right. all the money she spent was on film and equipment. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of interesting stuff about this movie that's not even just on the screen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's definitely true because she approaches it very much like a documentary. Mm-hmm. And obviously she excelled in that format um, throughout her career, really. But um, like if the opening sort of establishes the realism of this world that she's capturing. And the camera travels down like a corridor in the village, brushing against laundry, peering into open windows. It's very curious the way it sort of goes into these different places. Like, it it sort of mirrors her, I think. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm very interested in learning about what this is all about. And so that's kind of where the camera lingers, and I love that. And it moves forward, and it pulls back, and it sort of travels throughout the village and things. And um, it's not really until, like, the end of the movie that there's they sort of all... Um, interconnect mm-hmm. in that way that like you know like an Altman movie would or Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia it's like you know they, they sort of live their own lives and then they sort of come together at the end which I, I have a I have an affinity for that type of um, narrative where we just sort of gradually learn about everybody and then they sort of all come together at the end like Wes Anderson's really good at doing that too like with the end of Rushmore everybody's at the dance I love that stuff right. <laughs> so here yeah it's but I wasn't really... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you do have a master's, and I don't. But I know this is... She's known as the godmother of French New Wave. But I got a sense of Italian neorealism here. Yeah, I do. I think that's true, too. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of hard to associate her with a movement, because she is so much... Well, she claims to have not seen that many movies before making this hmm. one. Um, which, That's interesting. Like, I think might be sort of a joke. They mention it in Beaches of Agnes, <laughs> right, too, right, with yeah. the Chris Marker cartoon cat. And mm-hmm. as she says that, he rolls his eyes, which yep. I think is really funny. <laughs> um, so I think she has seen a few movies, but I think photography maybe more informed her background than anything else. But yeah. I think she definitely... And I've also... I've read other people who have noticed neorealism in her work. Because, yeah, it's it's just very... Um, well, there's, like, this documentation of, like, the working class mm-hmm. um, and sort of their struggles um, against these uh, people who come in from the city and are, like, 
or they're um what are they health commissioners of some right. kind yeah yeah so like against the the sort of love story if you will i think the other major conflict is that going on in the background mm-hmm. um oh and then yeah also kids dying for no reason and just like all this oh. sort of tragic stuff going on in the background right um it's very political and sociological but yet she manages to retain some sort of intimacy among the characters and you know I always use these terms probably because I took social work classes but it's like mingling the micro level with the macro level to some degree because you get to learn about the community at large but you also get to experience the day to day lives of individuals or couples mm-hmm. and that's very true throughout most of our films Yeah, is I think they have some sort of political statement but it's not so overt that you lose sight of it and you get to just at least be a part of the, of the people and what they experience personally mm-hmm. so that's kind of what I like about this this film in particular like yeah there's there's just the the underlying sociological implications of you know a lot of the things they go through and they often speak in like almost like in a poetic um, cadence or they have like deep philosophical conversations. Mm-hmm. But I was I was reminded. I think there's one point where the where the the couple is like framed in a way that's very similar to Bergman yeah. and Persona. I, you know, and then of course Alex Ross Perry just recently did this movie called Queen of Earth, where right. I felt like he was directly paying homage to Persona with one shot in particular. So I, yeah, I thought of that, and I this came before it did. Yeah. So. I'm just wondering if like Bergman's like saw that it's like hmm that might be a good <laughs> yeah maybe he did <laughs> yeah it's a really interesting shot and yeah. I think it comes up a couple times um, but yeah it's it's really striking a lot of the imagery in this movie is really striking it's what you were talking about before um, I just like when she sort of focuses on stuff like the mm-hmm. the clothing on the line. Um, or all this um, fishing equipment just, like, sort of littering the streets. Yeah. Um, and all these textures of wood and things that come out of the ocean. It's it's just, like, a really beautiful movie, in addition to all the other cool stuff there right. is to think about, about it. Yeah, it is a very gorgeously shot movie. I, I watch it, and I'm just kind of, like, in awe of... Again, it's realism, but... She's still very stylistic while being realistic, I guess you could say. Like, it's amazing to me. This does play like a debut film, but there's a sense of confidence behind the style at the same time. Yeah, there definitely is. Sort of like she came fully formed <laughs> into the, yeah. the medium. Because, it's- I mean, I mean, I remember like, probably the first Italian neorealist film I probably saw in that same film class... I talked about earlier was um, Bicycle Thieves and I remember just being so taken with just how natural and organic and everything it was and I get that impression here whereas with her next film which we'll get to in a minute it's totally reminds me of French New Wave and that's kind of why I could see like people citing that film as being one of the one of the first but this one I don't know I just didn't get that same impression with like the playfulness of jump cutting and just you know, doing a lot of sort of random go-for-broke kind of things that French New Wave does. Yeah. I feel like the biggest thing that this has in common with the New Wave is sort of just being really cheap 
and yeah. um yeah she just sort of took the camera into the street and like did what she could right um so it was like more i feel like this the uh not like really so much the style of it although i feel like there is some style that's similar with the new wave but just how she went about doing it um i feel like they probably learned from that and were like, oh, yeah, let's just <laughs> yeah. um, just do this thing because that's what she mm-hmm. did. Yeah, I just, I really, really thought it was interesting to see in, in context with the rest of her career and it definitely has that curiosity going for it about what what is what would it be like to be here living in this town. And, and the, I mean, it's so formalistically interesting in terms of combining a documentary narrative almost with just her own sort of style that she hadn't really fully formulated yet. But I think I still think it's like again like you mentioned the cinematography's great, learning about all these individual people is really interesting. Um and I I just I always enjoy um relationship studies in general so when we get to learn more about that young couple and just experience what they're experiencing that's that was very compelling as well. I guess that is another sort of new wavy thing. Yeah. Um, the couple that's just talking about what is love. <laughs> right. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Any sort of existentialist approach to love, I'm all for. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's... There's the, the, the scene where the mother is grieving for the little boy, too. It's like, oh my god. I think it, like her camera's like kind of in the doorway and begins pulling back gradually um, and it passes through like another doorway. It's just there's really interesting touches throughout this movie that sort of make it an essential viewing if you're interested in her career. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's very graceful and sort of um, got a lot of feeling to it and that's what I love about movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great to get sort of caught up in... Um, like the the relationship melodrama part of it but it's it really focuses on just like personal experiences in a small community and i like that a lot Mm -hmm. too claire denis sort of comes to mind because she also managed to capture just the intimacy of experience but would also be sort of um, playful with style at times but also someone very interested in community and how they interact together yeah, a sense of place Yeah, is very important to her, too, I think. Right. And I, I think watching pretty much the entire career, or at least as much as I could, of Varda, I was like, she is, ex- she is exceptional at storytelling while retaining emotional truth. And yet, like, also having a... Pl- I, I use this word a lot, but playfulness, because she has a really interesting sense of humor... She you know? does, yeah. I was um, I was talking to my wife about watching these movies since I don't speak French. Um, the subtitles have like all these plays on words that I know are in the dialogue also, and I really wish that I could understand them in context because I think she does play around with words and meanings a lot in a way that yeah. through translation you don't really get to see like the whole uh, nuance of that. But yeah, I love her sense of humor. Right. I love her affinity for cats as well. Well, of course. That's, yeah. <laughs> that was a that was immediately apparent. <laughs> that made that always makes me happy. Like even if they're just hanging out in the background, I'm like, 
I've yet to visit France, but I plan to sometime in my life. But just imagine cats everywhere. <laughs> They're just hanging out in the streets. Because um, I think, like, I even saw that in, uh, like, Before Sunset with uh, Julie Delpy. She's like, oh, there's cats hanging out in the street. And she picks up one. Oh, that's my cat over there. <laughs> just, like, hanging out in the, like, um, um, courtyard of, of her building and everything. And she's like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> But yeah, she she's she finds a way to put a cat somewhere in pretty much all her yeah, films. I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, of course. And you know, like I mentioned, she does have a great sense of humor, but she also likes to tackle big themes: the inevitability of death, which we're, which we're about to get to. Oh yeah. Um, and just like diminished passions that people go through, which we'll get to with the third film. I, I really like her first film a lot. And I plan to rewatch it again, knowing what I'm in store for, and sort of just to get an even stronger sense of her overall filmography. But I was blown away by her next film, as you were when you first saw this, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm not even the biggest Godard fan in the world, but I thought of this as like a more melancholic, uh, vivre sa vie? (laughs) Because that was one of the first... I mean, I really liked Breathless when I saw it, but I, I did get to see Vivre Sevi at the Music Backs. The Music Backs. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one with um, Anna. Anna Karina is the yeah. the sex worker, prostitute, whatever you'd like to call that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she has a great jukebox dance. <laughs> <laughs> this one, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't. That one's a little more. I wouldn't say goofy. But it's it's certainly got like just Godard's go for broke nature of like let's try this weird thing right now and see if it works and it usually does in my opinion. But here it's really about the fear of death right. <laughs> more or less. But there's a there's a moment in this where she's walking down the streets and people begin looking at her directly, and it reminded me of like sort of the opposite version of Carnival of Souls where. In that movie, she feels completely non-existent, and nobody's acknowledging her at all because she's essentially a ghost. But that, to me, felt like what depression can feel like. Just like, I'm so detached and nobody notices me and I'm all alone in my thoughts. Whereas this is like anxiety, where everybody's looking at me and I'm feeling overwhelmed by society and by people, and I feel like everybody is focused on me as I'm thinking about all these deep thoughts. And yeah, so it's like anxiety kind of makes you hypervigilant to some degree. And I think that's what she's experiencing at a certain moment in this film. That it's like, yeah, I've had that once or twice in my life where I can identify with that. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, so I mean, that's this is this movie kind of it moved me and it made me think a lot. And it certainly sh- showcases where she was at this point in her life. And um, it, this definitely cemented her as like a filmmaker that everybody became interested in. Not that her first film didn't, but this one sort of stepped things up, I think. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a lot about her appearance in this movie and people yeah. looking at her. And I think some of it is like um, her anxiety about her illness. She asked at one point, um, is it written on my face? Like, can people yeah. just like see that I'm dying? Even if, if I don't think she is... It's, like, up in the air whether she actually is Sure, it's ambiguous at the end, which (laughs) Um, I love. But, yeah, there's also this sense of, like, 
her pride in her appearance um, and her beauty. Yeah. Um, she looks in the mirror early on and just the almost like the female gaze <laughs> yeah, is prevalent here. Her, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, her gaze on herself. Um, and it's sort of, she has like this weird vanity that isn't necessarily like an attractive trait, but it um, is, it's like really interesting in the movie. And it's, it, I feel like it's interesting that her beauty is sort of equated with her illness. Like, it's not just... I almost feel like um, her illness is almost just like aging. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, no, like, that's true. It's It could be interpreted that way as being like a metaphor. Like, once I'm not beautiful anymore, that is pretty much like my identity in this movie. My mm-hmm. beauty is sort of everything. Once I don't have that, am I still like fully alive? Um, and I think that's another part of like all the men gazing at her. It's just like she feels them looking at her illness, but also looking at her just physically. Um, and I think that makes her feel valuable, but at the same time, it's not forever. So I think that's like a thing that hmm. goes on underneath the surface of this film as well. That's interesting to think about because I know a lot of people had a strong response to the neon demon as being like about um, the male gaze and and pressures on a woman when she's beautiful to you know do something with that and embrace it and sort of because even the director at the Q and A was like this is this movie is really all about coming to terms with your own narcissism and accepting it as inevitable especially in the day and age of social media and stuff I didn't really get oh, that that's interesting. <laughs> but it's a movie I struggle with but like this one early on with her looking in the mirror and that sense of vanity um, and this idea of I could be disintegrating inside which will also reflect who I am on the outside um, and she tries you know in certain instances to really embrace her, her talents like the 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 moment where she starts singing is just like heartbreaking. I think even Godard is playing one of the. He might be playing the piano, the pianist, or uh, well, no, I, I feel um, like there's two he's directors. He's in the short film. Godard is in the short film. Oh, okay. But um, actually, Godard and Anna Karina, I think, in that mini yeah. short film that they see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, and then Michelle Legrand, the composer, I think, is playing the piano. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, I just that whole sequence is fantastic. Um. I, I found myself just like really engaged by this movie throughout where you know sometimes I can have like a disconnect with it or I may not be able to identify with the characters and that's totally fine but here I was just like I my I guess my empathy radar kicked it kicked on right away mm-hmm. with this one where it's like I've I've had some some strange scares when it comes to health in my time so I understand that fear and like you're walking around everybody seems to be living their normal lives while I have this thing on my mind right that seems to be prevalent here as well but there's one one line where she says like people are obsessed with cancer and heart trouble my disease is work phone calls and appointments I I don't know if she says that or somebody else says that but that was like Hmm. a very interesting line I thought to include in here um, 
but yeah, she uh, Varda said that she was inspired by a 16th century painter, and she saw all these different paintings of like a woman next to like you know a skeleton. Oh right, yeah, representing death, and so she was really taken with that, and that sort of influenced her to make this movie. So I find it interesting that her debut was like she read a book. Here she saw some paintings, and I think that's really because you know a lot of directors are just like movies, 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 and that sort of informs them. And obviously, life experience will play into it. But with Varda, she will openly admit to seeing a different art form mm-hmm. and saying, "How can I contribute my feelings about this other art form into something into a personal statement?" Yeah, I like that a lot, too. I feel like I've learned a lot about art from watching Agnes Varda's movies, especially her documentaries. Um, Yeah, because she has a different sort of uh, purview than a lot of other directors. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I think one of the things that makes her movies so fresh to someone who's obsessed with film is that they don't riff on other movies. Yeah. As much as... There's not a self-awareness about... I have to comment on this movie, or I have to, yeah. I mean, obviously, because they were earlier on, but, you know, I don't think she's the type to be like, I need need to make a neo-noir, I need to make a western, (laughs) or anything. I'm just going to make a movie that's me. Yeah. Really, it's an extension of me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she's so successful at doing that and making it original at the same time. There's, there's like, like I mentioned, a, a feeling of anxiety watching this movie, not just because of the story that's involved, but... Again, she was trying to capture like the sociological feeling of France at the time. Um, there was a hyper awareness of a lot of things going on, like the collective psyche of right. everything, yeah. um, and so she sort of infused that into this world that she's captured and created here. But again, we're so, it's a character study too, which is what I love about it. It's like you get so wrapped up in will she get to the doctor. Um, you know, it almost has the um, the Hungarian film. I want to say it's Hungarian. Four months, three weeks, two days, or maybe it's I can't remember. But yeah, that's there's like an immediacy to finding out what's going to happen next. And throughout this movie, like I wasn't sure how I felt about the detour, where it's not really a detour because it sort of ends up here, but where she meets the the I guess it's a naval officer or someone. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and they have like a quick connection and stuff. And okay, well. You're sort of embracing a, a meet cute kind of a love story, but it's you know we we as the audience knows that there's something else going on with her and he doesn't know that yet. I found the the final moments to be really effective. It's like we don't really know this guy, but it's, he seems really good natured and has you know really cares about her. He's not like about to up and leave her um, as she's about to find out what her fate is essentially. Yeah. I, I really I really like the end of this movie too I think and I respond to it a lot um, I guess I don't want to spoil this for people who haven't seen it but I also feel like I have you to. can <laughs> okay um, when she finds out that or when the doctor tells her her disease isn't necessarily terminal um, there's this sort of veil that's lifted on her face yeah. um, and suddenly uh, everything is sort of new again Um and it turns out like <laughs> she has this whole new sort of life to start probably like maybe with this guy maybe not um but i think the film ends on just a close up of them sort of 
gazing at each other in a deep close-up. That's so beautiful. And it's, it's really touching. Um, and there's just sort of like this feeling of opportunity, like my life, maybe it's not over. And like this new love is starting. Right. Yeah. It's really, really beautiful. And, um, I also really like the shot there where after the doctor sort of drives up and he's like, Hey, what's up? Like, <laughs> yeah, before. um, and then he get, he like just sort of unloads this news and it's like no big deal to him. It's like just his job. So he delivers this like really yeah. s- small piece of news and drives <laughs> off. Um, and then there's sort of the, the backward tracking shot moving away from them where you feel her just being like, what? Like, and all mm-hmm. of us are sort of just like, Whoa, like the, like, uh, what we thought was going on this whole time. I mean, it's still definitely possible that she'll die, and she's right, but it just puts a new spin on things that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I love that moment so much. It's it's like the, the doctor's so blasé about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that that shot, sort of him driving off, is. I thought, okay, this is, this is a good note to end on, but then he, she finds an even better, more graceful note to end on with, mm-hmm. with them possibly connecting more in yeah. the future yeah that's true it almost seems like it's going to end with that shot I think almost every time I watch it I kind of think it is yeah. going to end there and then it keeps going for another few seconds yeah it's kind of about temporality and how that can be oppressing to some degree um, but I also what I thought it was is like time can be our friend or can be our enemy in some cases where it's like you know death can happen at any moment but look so can love so can an interpersonal connection with another human being that can happen and mm-hmm. when you're not expe- when you're least expecting it so it's like both things are sort of intertwined in a way it's like she gets this news um and it's not the worst news but you know, she still has to go in for treatments. Yeah, essentially, she still has stomach cancer. Right, you're <laughs> it's right. Not great. No, it's not. It's not great, but it's not terminal. Yeah. Hopefully, there's just no way to know, and yeah. I think that's. I think the ambiguous note that it ends on is is very realistic because if you get a diagnosis like that, you don't know. Yeah. Essentially, it could go either way. Yeah, and there's also like that feeling like oh is that doctor just telling her what she wants to hear like is yeah you really don't know but it's still it's a really really cool ending um what was i gonna say oh um we yeah we really haven't talked about how it was in the movie is sort of supposed to be in real time right which since you just brought up temporality (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting thing to comment on i think it just sort of hit me um that that's probably totally what that ending is all about um it's sort of like this extended moment in time like you think it's over and then it keeps on going and this whole movie is sort of about subjective versus objective time Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's one of those subjective moments where time just sort of opens up (laughs) and i think that's really cool yeah because i i mean i think we've all had experience especially when we're in love or feeling love that like time stops mm-hmm. or just feels different when you're with somebody that you're connecting with. And I think that final moment sort of captures that without like words even. And that's, those are the kind of endings I love where it is all visual and you don't need the characters to speak out everything that they're feeling. 
um, the ending of Big Night in particular with Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub, where you're expecting like them to sort of hash out their feelings through dialogue, and it's really all body language, and it's all gesturing, and a brother putting his arm around the other brother as reconciliation, and the movie stops. Hmm. And that's like, I love that. I love that. <laughs> so does the cat. Yeah, Ira decided to voice his opinion. All right, Ira. <laughs> You're you're more than welcome to contribute. I can I can get out a third mic for you, if you like. I love this movie, and I'm so glad to have finally have seen it because it's one that I will be picking up from the Criterion sale that's now going on fifty percent off. <laughs> I almost feel like they should be a sponsor. Yeah, they're yeah. yeah. <laughs> they should be. All the money we spend. I'm sure all the listeners have spent tons of money on Criterion movies. The next one is interesting because <laughs> there was some controversy upon its release. There was this, almost similar to the stupid Ghostbusters crap, but, um, like, how dare a woman make a film about the male privilege subject of male sexual privilege? Huh. Oh, I didn't realize there was controversy about that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, like, Last Temptation of Christ-level controversy, but it was, it was there, um, in response to, like, this idea of... I don't know, a woman sort of taking on the perspective of a man who's just, you know, kind of this cheating louse. I mean, that's the thing, though, is that, like, she find, she manages to, f- to empathize with him at the same time. Right, like, she doesn't yeah. judge him or condemn him for having desires for another woman, which I think is really, really fascinating. We're talking about happiness, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I should mention that. Um, in stark contrast to uh, Cleo... It's very colorful. Right, and yeah. And warm. It's very vibrant. <laughs> yeah. Very yellow. Which was... I saw it for the first time at um, Siskel. Oh! Yeah, on, when they were... It was like a recently restored um, print. I mean, it was on DCP, but... Sure. It was, uh, it was gorgeous. <laughs> <sighs> it's movie is just incredibly gorgeous. I think it's a little slow, but I think she's also just establishing the family dynamics and the relationship um, early on with like, oh, let's watch them, you know, out in nature with a picnic and, you know, getting along, like, just presenting the sunnier side of their marriage and everything and the family. And what's crazy is like, this is a real family. Like, yeah, I didn't realize really that married until and like a few kids. days ago I read it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it seems, they seem like they're really comfortable together. Like there's instant chemistry and there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, and this is, and then, okay, you know, after we sort of um, get to know the family, he has an attraction to, towards, I believe her name is Emily. Now, I was getting the impression that she works at a post office That's of what some I kind, thought. right? <laughs> yeah. But apparently you can use the telephone or get long distance calls at this post office yeah. in France. 60s France things. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I might not understand. I don't either. I guess we should have lived in 1960s France to really <laughs> understand what's going on. But, I mean, it's like a telegram kind of a service, too, I guess. So it's like a combination of both. Um, so, yeah, they just they, they exchange some meaningful glances towards one another and attraction sparks. And one of my favorite moments involves their sort of first quote-unquote date where they're, I guess, like having drinks outside. And her choice of these oblique angles and weird cuts 
that's just they seem really unconventional but they're really interesting to watch as you're like I feel like it's capturing different part like you know different parts of her face at one point um and sort of cutting away or like zooming in on a sign I forgot what this I should have wrote that down but I forgot what it says on the sign but it probably says something like affair or like it's like it's like something really blunt um and it's that kind of that kind of thing reminds me of like the the playfulness that Paul Thomas Anderson has with form like in Magnolia while the frogs are raining he'll just zoom in on a painting that says this really happened <laughs> and that's that's like I love that stuff like for some people it can take them out of the movie or it makes their eyes roll because it's like oh that's really silly but I think it I think it works. Mm-hmm. So like that whole exchange that they have where they're basically establishing their intimacy outside um and we're like cutting away to strangers and I love all that stuff. Yeah. It is it's cool. And it's also shot just really differently from his exchanges with his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where it's very sort of still and staticky. But like I don't think it's supposed to be any kind of judgment. Maybe it's just you know, she's a different apple tree. <laughs> right. As that uh, yeah, clumsy it, metaphor he uses goes. Because I don't really think he's a bad guy. He just happens to be... I don't want to use the word amorous, but he just happens to be, you know, fixated on two women almost equally. That he can't help himself. I, but he feels guilt about it, too, I think. I think she showcases that, like... Yeah, he's you know kind of a jerk for cheating, but he's almost trying to rationalize it at the same time and she's not condemning this character for doing what he does even though it's not right. Yeah, I think Yeah, he's just like I mean, it's a political commentary. He's that just too. doing what it's been okay for men to do for forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the same time, the wife does what women are supposed to do, which is keep her husband happy, <laughs> happiness. Um, but it doesn't go well for her. <laughs> yeah, but that's what's sad is like neither of the women are really happy. I mean, I think Emily is just because she's getting all this attention from a great guy in her mind initially. Mm-hmm. But then also realizing like she's also the other woman. Right. And so that makes her sad. And then once the wife finds out what's happened, then she's immediately devastated by it. Um, Of course, spoiler alert coming up, but what do you think happens after after we cut away from them together um, and then he goes off to look for her? Do you think she just took her own life and that's that? I'm that's that's that was my guess, but yeah, I don't I don't really know. Um yeah. She ends up drowned. Um for those who don't care about a spoiler. <laughs> right. Well, I, I just couldn't I just gauge if that. it was an accident or Yeah. Um Yeah, I I'm not sure whether it was an accident either. But I also it's it's not clear whether she's just so distraught. She's sort of just uh, falls into the water and dies or if she does it unintentionally or like either way it's sort of she's lost some crucial part of herself I think yeah um, enough that she can't really go on 
Yeah, it's like I know people who identify themselves or define themselves by their role as boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, um, or their job, or any any number of things can define them. And when they lose that, it is completely devastating to them. It's it, they feel like they've lost their identity essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like even in my situation with with my own mom, my mom feels great because she gets to be my mom. But the moment I leave, it's like that that role is taken away. Like oh, I can't cook you dinner, or I can't help you with this, or I can't you know do the laundry for you or whatever. That's what I'm so used to doing because that's who I've defined myself as. Right. And that's it's sad because it's almost like another person is sort of enabling or defining you um, in conjunction, but it's it's normal. It's normal for someone to say, I'm this person's this, and I'm or I'm this person's caretaker. But I think in this case, when the wife finds out that I'm not... I'm not just the only woman in his life. She's so taken aback and in shock and decides... That she almost doesn't want to exist. Yeah, I think that's and just my guess. It. I just thought of this now, but the, like the husband keeps on talking about for him how like, oh, like happiness is unlimited. It just keeps on coming. Like as this new woman is here, I'm just like twice as happy. Right. Um. So what happens when his wife disappears, or like when his wife dies? Like what happens to that excess happiness then? It's like he's a glutton for happiness and then gets punished for it in a way. Yeah. I think. But then, you know, the the postal clerk lady, she becomes the, the wife, essentially, in the end. She takes on the role. Yeah. Which, for some reason, she really reminds me of Tippehedron. I'm not yeah, sure why. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that, yeah. Um, which has nothing to do with any of this. But another thing about that transition that I just noticed when I was watching it again on DVD this time um, is that like you know in the beginning the movie opens with these like really lush spring landscapes flowers um, all these greens and then in the end um, he takes his new wife I'll just call her Tippehedron <laughs> um, to the woods with his family like he did with his wife and this time the color palette has changed it's um, it's an autumnal thing yeah a changing and, of the seasons yeah. kind of a look. And uh, hmm. I don't know, I wondered what that was about and what I was supposed to take away from it. Because it's, it's still beautiful, but then when autumn comes, it's sort of like this fleeting thing before everything sort of decays and then it's winter. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a really good point. I mean, I think... Ideally, to him, he he feels like he construct he can construct a new happiness with this new person, but maybe that's not possible based on the tragedy that's happened already. Yeah, like you almost have to take the the changing of the seasons um, and process that just as much as you have to process the tragedy. But I, I mean, it's like I th- I wonder if he's in denial at the same time. We don't really get to know that much about like his emotional state. It's almost just like suggested yeah. at the end. It's um, sort of like a montage when she does. Yeah. yeah, that is a 
that's a really am- amazingly put together montage where it's almost like she took the different takes and spliced them together but you know it's like he has different reactions within that montage yeah which I found really interesting and then towards the end of it he's sort of just getting back to his normal um, routine except with yeah a different wife in the same same place yeah I mean it sort of presents you know familiar themes with infidelity but she does it in this like really avant-garde yet accessible manner that I I was really engrossed by this movie too and I it's one that I expect to be thinking a lot about as time goes on like I wouldn't say it's one of my all-time favorites by her I haven't watched everything yet but I found it really just like haunting with what takes place and I just you know I, I certainly find it difficult to empathize with somebody who cheats but I thought the way Varda decided to present and maybe that's why people got in an uproar because she doesn't sort of condemn him oh and, that could be yeah. you know like she's almost like not being passive but sort of just saying well this is men and yeah. what are you gonna do she's like with gender roles the way they are like this is what yeah what might happen um yeah it's just and especially I guess from a contemporary standpoint though it's a lot easier to condemn him (laughs) I think sure um because he's a very like by all accounts a very likable sweet great guy great father which is cool um, he loves his kids, but then he's also just extraordinarily selfish. Um, yeah. He's like, my happiness, I've got... <laughs> he doesn't think about other people's happiness. Yeah, he's like, these two trees, my orchard just keeps on getting bigger. Yeah. Um, and then he doesn't think about or really consider uh, what happens to the happiness of the other people in the situation. Right. Um. And then I guess it's really hard to know at the end whether he's learned from that at all. Yeah. And that sort of leaves it very open-ended in terms of like an, like a, a resolution where you don't really know for sure if he's grieving or if he's happy. And I, But again, like almost like the ending of the last film, I love that note. I love to be left out. I love the lingering ambiguity as opposed to, like, um, a sense of closure sometimes. Especially, I think that even as recently as something like Meek's cut off the way that movie ends, I was like, that's what I like. Oh, yeah. That movie. <laughs> like, people, people are driven crazy by that ending. I just got a little chill right now thinking about that ending. Yeah. It's really good. Well, Kelly Reichardt is, or Reichardt. <laughs> is one of my favorite directors working today and I can't wait for a new movie to come out it's like an ensemble piece it's like three different stories mm-hmm. so, I'm excited about it too yeah well we're gonna have to go see that opening night I think cause uh I get I just I go I go nuts for her films yeah <laughs> like I thought Night Moves was not one of her best but I still found it interesting yeah I agree it wasn't yeah. up there like way up there yeah. <laughs> but it was still really good well, you know what? That's a great transition to Vagabond because I was thinking of Wendy and Lucy when I was watching Vagabond just a little oh, bit. Oh, that's a really just a little bit. Oh, that's a really good comparison, I think. Yeah, just because of like how she kind of wanders 
around in people's lives, intermingles with them in different ways. I um, think um, having a woman just wandering around on her own is still kind of a weird thing. Like, it's something you notice. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's definitely... I think that was probably a touch point for Kelly Reicher in Wendy and Lucy. I'd never thought about that before, but I think that's probably true. It was funny because I, I was driving through the city fairly recently, a couple days ago, and I think it was off of Lawrence, I saw a woman, like, holding up a sign that just said Iowa. You know, she was hitchhiking, essentially. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was like, oh, I'm, I'm so worried for her. I hope she I hope she doesn't choose a bad guy. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, and it's just, that's my nature. It's like, I, you know, I, I worry. But, <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting thought in of itself is like, just the, the sight of seeing a woman wandering alone m- makes her very vulnerable and you, you know, sort of, hopefully you have a concern for her safety. Um, that seems like a normal reaction to have. I'm not saying, like, you have to be the protector and the coddler and all that mm-hmm. stuff, but I just mean, like, I was concerned for this woman in this in this movie, but she's fiercely independent. Yeah. Although, like, some stuff does happen to her. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. And I was I was actually just reading a book that makes me think about the same thing, a Maggie Nelson book, um, where there's this one scene where she talks about scene uh, passage, I guess you would say, in a book. Um, she talks about being alone um, and how her mom worries about her being alone, but it's one of her favorite things yeah. to just sort of be alone at night which is something that women are sort of told from an early age that we can't do, Hmm. (laughs) which um, really sucks. I mean, I feel like, I think a lot of women are like, oh, like, this is a thing that maybe I'll never experience. Like, what is it like to just wander around alone and not have to worry about it? So I think that's another reason Hmm. this movie and Wendy and Lucy sort of calls to me in a way. It's like... yeah you do have to be fearless um, and I guess accept that some stuff is going to happen to you. Or it could, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate and I I still have a visceral reaction when I hear any number of my female friends experiencing especially in the city, catcalling and inappropriate gestures um, from, you know, guys just driving down the street or whatever. And, you know, I mean, that's... uh, There's no controlling that, necessarily. You can certainly yell back, but I always... It just makes nice guys look bad. (laughs) Because it's like, I would never think to do something like that. But here I hear, like, oh, that happened to me again today. And just like, oh, it makes me roll my eyes. But anyway, so the camera in this opening shot, you know, it sort of has this almost like Malik kind of feel where it's painting and a landscape full of fields and trees and it sort of serves as the backdrop for the main credits and stuff um and it's the camera track slowly forward um yeah but i just i think that the opening tracking shot's really really great because it, you don't get caught up with her right away it's not like it's opens on her and we open on the environment oh, and then we sort right. of catch up to her I yeah, really like and it's that. a very sort of gradual thing. Right, right, gradual. That's perfect word for it. Um, so is it? It's the actress in this is Sandrine Bonnier. I want to say something like that. Yeah, 
I first saw her when I was working at. I was. Well, it's funny. I was just how I was about the phrase. I first saw this when I was working at. I first saw her when I was working at a video store. Now I first saw her in a movie that I rented when I was working at a video store um, called Mansoura Iyer, oh. which is an incredible film from I want to say the late eighties, early nineties. Think more early nineties. Yeah, that was her big time, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, but it was like one of the best. I mean, I think Hitchcock and um, the movie Peeping Tom are amongst the best um, sort of filmmakers that <laughs> capture voyeurism in a really profound way. But Monster Iyer is really right up there because it has like a rear window kind of quality to it with a guy sort of looking outside his window and fixating on one thing, one mm-hmm. person. Um, and that she's the lead actress and that is essentially, you know, the not necessarily the victim, but just the the object of interest, you know, to put it that way. But um I w- I was really taken with her in that film and thought she was great. And in here she is something else. I I, I love Sandrine Bonaire. <laughs> yeah. Um Sandrine Bonaire. I've never seen the one that you're talking about. But I, actually, my first introduction to her was, uh, I'll just say it in English, The Ceremony, that yeah. a Claude Chabral film. Um, He's another, yeah, that's another filmmaker I need to catch up on. Yeah, and she's just so good. She's so good at, um, it's like, she might be an object of interest, but I feel like it's she's never objectified in, right. her, in the movie she's in, which is yeah. really cool. Um She's very talented, very, very expressive, but not. She just sort of like has this internal um, energy that comes through, um, but she's very sort of restrained as an actress. I think. Yeah, that's my favorite type of acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like someone like Michelle Williams does that very well too. Mm-hmm. Going yeah. back to Wendy and Lucy. Um, this this movie really hit me too. I at first I wasn't sure I was I was with it, but then after a while it was because I'm usually not necessarily indifferent, but I I sometimes don't know if I'm going to love a film where it's part documentary and part narrative, where all of a sudden we just cut to a character looking into the camera, interview style. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the same reservation at first with Richard Linkletter's Bernie, where it's like, oh yeah, it's part Errol Morris, but part sort of quirky um, true story comedy kind of a thing. And I actually, in both cases, I, I gave into that sort of style, and I, I actually think it's very effective here because it also serves the film thematically in a way that's it's like I want to sort of comment on this idea of we all sort of project ourselves onto other people and then they take that experience interpret that experience in their own way it's like first they have the experience with with Mona the lead character in this and then later on in almost documentary fashion they sort of talk about what that experience was like in their own words Mm -hmm. so I I like the subjectivity of that Um, so I mean I just it's not necessarily all about projection 
but it's something I picked up on once we get to like just the people recounting what they went through with her. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of projection though, definitely. Um, especially because uh, Mona is such an enigma. I yeah. think um, she does sort of end up being sort of not a sounding board, but just sort of a weird because her behavior is so strange. Um, people kind of see what they want to see in it. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Um, and she's, I like, I sort of wonder, like, what I would make of Mona <laughs> if I met her. Because um, she's, like, uh, I mean, I sort of admire her in a way, but she's also, um, she's not afraid to be disliked, which is another cool, I mean, another thing... Uh, if you're a woman, <laughs> you're not really you're like you gotta of, be proper. Yeah, <laughs> you're um, sort of uh, socialized to make other people to want other people to like you and to make people feel good in your presence. And hmm. she's not like that at all. Um, with men or women, she's just like I'll take this these drugs that you're giving me. Um, I'm not gonna say thanks. <laughs> she never yeah. says thank you ever. Um, and she just does her own thing. <laughs> it's like it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I was kind of upset when she um, went into that bar slash restaurant and the guy gave her a sandwich and she didn't say thank you or anything. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, um, you should show, you should express some gratitude for that. Yeah, um, she's it, she's very unpredictable in that way. It's I mean, it's almost like when people. When people show her kindness or compassion or offer her something, she almost resists it in a way and decides to push herself away. Mm-hmm. She'll she'll definitely accept it, but I think part of her is also like, well, I can't get too attached because I'm 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 a I'm a rebel. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to keep moving. It's like I think even at one point she says like, I don't care, I move. Yeah, <laughs> and that seems to to sort of encapsulate her personality. Is like, I, I'm sure part of her deep down has humanity, and she actually cares, but she doesn't want that to get in her way of her journey. Essentially, mm-hmm. she wants to keep moving and experience life, which yeah. is an interesting choice for a lead character to not really give her an arc, per se. Where it's like the ultimate journey is the destination kind of experience, but at the same time that I don't want to say naivete but just I guess her aimlessness ultimately becomes her own downfall mm-hmm. with you know she winds up really inebriated and intoxicated and then falls asleep in a ditch and then from, from the cold I guess is how she passes on I think that's what they come to the conclusion. Like, it wasn't obviously, um, you know, foul play or murder or anything. It was just, she was out in the cold and froze. Yeah, she freezes to death. Yeah. Which is, it makes it a tragic movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think a lot of it is really fascinating. And, like, a lot of the characters she comes across, again, is very episodic. But it's, I think each interaction I found interesting. Yeah. Um, And it's also interesting, again, to see how each one of them sort of projects their own desires onto her. Yeah. Like, I think early on, I forget the woman's name, but 
she sees um, Mona and this boyfriend she's just sort of picked up mm-hmm. asleep in bed and she's like oh true love that's what true love looks like yeah um, but it turns out but what is actually going on is Mona's just like hanging out with this guy because he has some weed mm-hmm. <laughs> and she wants to smoke it right like his, his month stash in a week I think yeah um, so that that one's really interesting and then uh the one when she settles with this sort of family that's gone back to the land um yeah and at first they're kind of taken with her because they're like oh like look at this woman who's rejected society she's sort of like us but then they realize she actually has no agenda Mm -hmm. at all (laughs) (laughs) and become really disenchanted with her yeah that's interesting that's (laughs) to think like oh man i we may have found somebody else who understands what we want to be and when they find that out it's they ultimately reject reject her in a way yeah it's yeah. like she i mean i know she must have a philosophy of some kind but it seems like she doesn't no and that's again that it doesn't make her a blank slate but it does allow it it doesn't you can't put her in a box you can't pigeonhole her and say she's this type of person or she fits this type of personality characteristic. She's a little bit of everything in some ways. And that makes the... Again, it, like I mentioned, she's unpredictable. It makes her journey throughout the movie very unpredictable about where she's going to wind up. And at one point, she winds up working for a while in like a field. Mm-hmm. Like pruning, kind of, yeah, I think. Yeah, pruning. And it, that guy seems really well-intentioned, too. But it, it's, it's almost like when he's interviewed at the end, he sends some longing... Because, like, he... I don't know if he really was attracted to her or found her interesting, but he, I think he just feels sad for her or something. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's... I guess that's kind of how I felt, but I also admired her freedom. Right. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to do what I want, and that's that. And I don't care if anybody... I don't care what society thinks. I don't care what these people think that I come into contact with. I'm just going to be me. Mm-hmm. And roam freely like that. But, again, that... It's almost like it's almost like into the wild too, where that sort of um, lack of stability becomes the downfall. Yeah, you know? so t- if you totally reject society, yeah, there's nowhere for you, I guess. Right. It's yeah. it's like it's you know there's the society where people sort of um, go well if I get a house in the suburbs. And, you know, the perfect nine-to-five job and the wife or the husband, then I'm happy and everything's great. There's that. And then there's the extreme opposite end of the spectrum where somebody sort of drops out of society, Albert Brooks style in Lost America or something, and decides to roam the the country. Ultimately, I don't think either extreme can lead to prolonged, consistent happiness. Yeah. It's a combination it's a nice balance between that where you find a nice home hopefully somebody to spend the rest of your life with but you're able to go on trips or you're able to walk in nature or you're able to do all the things that maybe somebody who has kind of dropped out of society does on a regular basis Mm -hmm. but that's just my own interpretation of life I don't know if it's accurate (laughs) other people may feel very differently Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of her films, as we mentioned, do have like a, f- I, I use this a lot, formal playfulness, but this one's fairly straightforward uh, outside of like the, the detouring to, you know, uh, an interview 
sort of approach with characters looking directly into the camera and expressing what they went through. Which I again, it, it's it was less new wave and more neo realistic. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought this was I thought this whole movie was something else. I really did. Yeah. Like it seems like as the more and more I watch him, like, wow, she she everybody should know who Agnes Varda is. Mm-hmm. If you love movies, you got to start watching some Agnes Varda, and that's exactly how I felt. Yeah, and everyone should know who Mona is. <laughs> I feel like yeah. She's, I'm sure we, you know, to have, to be open enough. I'm sure you'll come across a real Mona mm-hmm. in your own life. But that's yeah, true. I, I really think like, and she's portrayed in a way that's not a cliche. She's very um, open to different experiences in different environments, um, and but she's also incredibly vulnerable to where she gives in to something like, you know obviously some bad influences towards the end that want to use her and you know I, I when she's like stumbling around drunk and like one guy is like oh you can make a lot of money or i can make a lot of money with you and i just get so angry <laughs> but yeah and it's just it's sad but again like i mentioned with the last film agnes Varda doesn't chastise her for her choices mm-hmm. that she just presents them as they are for better or worse mm-hmm. yeah it's a, a masterpiece <laughs> I, I concur let's take a break okay Kate, we're back. Hello again. <laughs> yeah, this is exciting because we've sang the praises of you know her work as a sort of narrative director, mostly fictional stories, but we should transition over to her documentary work now because some of it's pretty incredible. Um, we can start out with the Gleaners and I, and then go to the Beaches of Agnes, and then sort of talk about other, maybe some of her short films, short documentaries, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I guess what immediately struck me watching her documentaries, I thought of Chris Marker, who did La Jete mm-hmm. and things like that. Just really unconventional documentaries that are very um, experimental with approaching how they you know, capture a, a place in time. And often in integrating herself into her own films. Yeah. Which normally I find self-indulgent, like with Michael Moore. And uh, there's other examples. Like there's a Paul Williams documentary where the filmmaker is always putting himself on camera. Or this movie called Gasland where the director is constantly giving narration. Like, I, let me tell you how I think. Yeah. Without... I don't know, just presenting the material as it is, which kind of bugs me. But here, it's very fitting for the Gleaners and I. Yeah, and I I also think um, she has this idea of, like, well, when you're trying to present a topic, even, like, no matter how objective you try to be, 
Um, it's always going to have your specific imprint on it, how you see things. Um, and so I think she just sort of goes with that and is like, well, if we're going to have my point of view, let's have all of it. Let's have me too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, which I think is nice. Um, cause I, I took a class on documentaries once a long time ago and I sort of just got sick of talking about like, is this real? Is it not real? Like, Mm. How real is it? <laughs> How much of it is manipulated? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think rather than discussing that at all, she's just like, let's face it, it's subjective. Here I am. Let's um, let's dig into this. And I think that's refreshing. And it does, it actually sort of allows me to step away from that whole conversation, which tires me out, and just sort sure. of focus on the task at hand. Yeah, I remember... Um with Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven, which is an incredible documentary, I later find out that a lot of the scenes, some of the backdrops and the environments that he chose to film were actually toyed with by the director, saying, like... Because, like, one of the characters had all his trophies hidden away in, like, a closet or something. Mm -hmm. But he decided, why don't we just take all those trophies and put them all up on, on the shelves back here? and sort of manipulate the imagery a little bit. Which I didn't think is a bad thing, because he's yeah. making it cinematic. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's his choice. Different filmmakers will have different choices, where they want to make it completely real. Um, whereas, there's nothing wrong with making it cinematic. And I think that her decision to just say, guess what, I, I'm also a voice in this. Mm-hmm. And let me, you know, present myself isn't self-indulgent in this case. Yeah. It's actually complementary to the themes of, like, you know, for those who don't know, gleaning is the act of gathering remnants of the crops from a field after the harvest. And she sort of places herself in that position as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's like, I gather all these little pieces of film and, you know, make make something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing about this movie... Um on a personal level, it was, like, one of the first documentaries I actually really liked, because I... Documentary isn't... If you... I don't even know if you'd call it a genre. (laughs) That seems a little bit too broad for what documentary is, but I don't usually uh, connect with documentary movies as much. Um, But when I watched this one, uh, it sort of just transformed the idea to me of what a documentary could be. Um... And it's also interesting along with the rest of her work because there is sort of a documentary feeling Mm -hmm. and aspect even to her fiction movies. Like, she does use um, non-actors. In Vagabond, a lot of the people she comes... uh, Mona comes into contact with are just people she's found along the way. Right. Or Varda has found along the way. Um, And then La Pointe Court, also non-actors in their real setting. So it's a pretty... Seem, uh, it makes sense that she would start to make strictly documentaries mm-hmm. at a certain point. Um, and just because I love Agnes Varda so much, I love learning more about her <laughs> when she yeah. turns the camera on herself. She's a, an interesting character in a lot of respects. And if you're a fan of her films you should be interested in her as a person and I like the fact that she sort of combines both of them I know that there's a a documentary I've yet to see from 1986 called Sherman's March where 
it's all about one subject, and then all of a sudden it becomes about the filmmaker, too. And I keep hearing wonderful things about that. Um, and I know that he's made other documentaries that are like that, too, where it's like, I'm setting out to make a movie about this thing, but then I get caught up into it somehow, or it reflects an experience that I have. Let me tell you about it. And I think a lot of people can sort of be frustrated with that choice, but how can you with the character I don't know I call her a character but with a person like Agnes Varda how can you not be taken in by her and her whimsy yeah and just like her her vulnerability too because she's really open about her feelings mm-hmm. in a lot of her work she really is I think especially in Gleaners some of the most powerful parts for me are the parts that I think about the most are sort of when she's um, using the camera on her own body to explore, like, the aging process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think she also... Did, I forget which one this is. Is it Beaches, where she um, is putting the camera at uh, Jacques Demy's body? Is that or is that something that happens? I think that's in Beaches. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, there's this passage where she is filming her hands, and... It's really funny because it's just sort of this really introspective moment inside gleaners, Mm -hmm. which for the most part really is just about the different types of gleaning in contemporary France. Right. Um, How it started. Yeah. Yeah. But she's just like looking at the age spots in her hand and she's like, what? Like, I don't even like recognize the body that I'm in right now. (laughs) Um, And she's like, is it old age? My friend, is it old age? My enemy? Like I've become an animal. I don't know. Yeah. And it's really, really intense and pretty. Yeah, and and it doesn't feel unfocused. It's just, it's organic in that, like, maybe she was thinking this as she was filming the movie, why not include it, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's an audacious choice. I think that when filmmakers, because, like, I know a lot of people who rail against self-indulgence, but sometimes I think it's great mm-hmm. <laughs> when you include it in the movie. Like, there are definitely instances of it in the past that make me roll my eyes, but then there are certain mo- movies, like, you know, even Paul Thomas Anderson himself is like, Magnolia is too fucking long. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I love that it's three. I love that he's like, I'm going to make a three and a half hour Robert Altman esque kind of a movie, make it very melodramatic, and I'm going to have frogs fall this guy. Like, it's just. Do it. He just he just does it, and I think Agnes Varda does a lot of interesting things. Like even in this, like there's she she brings her camera with her and leaves it on, um, or forgets to turn it off at one point, and then just sort of like regards it with humor. It's like oh, this is the dance of the lens calf yeah. <laughs> or whatever, and I, I don't know. It's just a lot of people just sort of in the editing room decide to take that stuff out because it's quote unquote a mistake, but she decides to leave it in mm-hmm. and have a sense of humor about it. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if there are, like, avid detractors of that kind of thing, but I certainly, I find it endearing, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, well, that was a weird choice, why'd you include that? No, I, th- I find it endearing, especially in respect to a movie where it's about, you know, uh, one subject of gleaning, and she decides to sort of reframe it as, like, I'm also a gleaner, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that's, I think that's kind of kind of cool and kind of cute at the same yeah. time to do it that way. Because otherwise, 
and maybe this is why you haven't connected with a lot of documentaries, it really is just like, um, you know, watching a history lesson or it's like watching something on PBS or Frontline where it's just like presenting information and facts and material to you in a way that's kind of didactic. Yeah. But here it's more personal. Yeah, and I and she's asking you to engage with things, I think, in a yeah. way that a lot of documentaries don't. Because, yeah, she's like, well, I'm a gleaner too, and then I guess... In what ways are the viewers a gleaner also? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's true. And she, and she's not just a gleaner of images. She also talks about gleaner, like being a gleaner in terms of sort of collecting things from where she, where right. she goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so she picks up some like thrift store finds and she shows the camera, some postcards and things she's picked up. Um, so like this movie is also, about her, the filmmaking process, like her filmmaking process, and like traveling around, yeah, which is really fun too. Yeah, I'm. It's like the more we talk about, it, the more I really appreciate that, just as much as her, her fictional narratives, because it is like part documentary, but also part travelogue mm-hmm. and part personal essay. I, I mean, why not learn about the person that is presenting this material to you? In addition, mm-hmm. I think that's really, really great. Um, you know, part of me is like, well, would the story would have worked without her input like that? Probably not. Maybe it would have just, like I said, been kind of a dry, stuffy documentary then. So why not change it up and do very interesting things? I think that's exactly what Chris Marker has done, where, you know, something like Sans Soleil, if that's how you say it. I think that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Um... I always question if I'm pronouncing something foreign. I always question it. That's like kind of a people should just start a drinking game with that at this point. But I'm always like, is that right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I just you know he does very interesting things in that film where it's you know like cutting to different countries and different cultures and you know just presenting them as they as they are. And I really like that approach. And I like the still photography um, style of La Jete. And here she does just like a little bit of everything, and I just I like it when she throws things against the wall and sees what sticks. And I think just about everything she does is it works more mm-hmm. or less. Like I I don't necessarily like feel as emotionally invested sometimes, but I certainly love her as a person. So listening to her talk about her own life is is always always engaging. Yeah, it definitely is. Another thing I like about this movie is all the artwork in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is another place where you get to see all of her sort of her other interests um, on camera, which is really cool. Um, especially one thing I was thinking about when I was watching this that I hadn't really thought about before is the way she uses her camera to make so, like a uh, classical artwork sort of come alive in a weird way. Mm. I think there's some... I'm not good with uh, artistic periods, but I'm going to say medieval. It was some kind of, like, depiction of um, the end of times or something. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and hmm. she does a close-up on different parts of it and has a soundtrack going in a way that really makes it cinematic. Um, and... 
in a way, I mean, in a way it is. A lot of painting is sort of proto-cinema. Like, sure. <laughs> um, but I think that's really cool. And she also, at the very end, brings out, she gets the curators of a museum to bring a painting out of storage. Right. Um, and they bring it outside, which I'm like, were they really okay with this? Um, but they do it because <laughs> it's Agnes Varda. Yeah. Um, and then the wind is sort of uh, making the painting, the canvas itself move in a way that also makes it sort of come alive in this really beautiful way. Um, and I, I really like that. And I think it helps me understand Agnes Varda a little bit better that maybe, maybe she didn't need to see movies because <laughs> she sees all these photographs and paintings like in motion in a way that other people yeah. don't. Yeah. I think that's also true of like, um, of David Lynch. I don't know if he's a big movie guy, but he's a big fan of art yeah. and, and painting. And that's how he expresses himself. Probably. Well, it's obviously true that he probably has made more paintings than he's made films, but yeah, I just, I, 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 I love her documentaries and we're going to get to probably my favorite. Which is the beaches nice. of Agnes? Yeah, <laughs> what a! It's like the ultimate visual self-portrait. I almost, as I was watching this, I was like, I wouldn't mind if every director I love made something like this. True. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. it's like going through a family scrapbook in a way, and just getting the subjective experience from the director, and being really reflective about it, and thought, thinking about where she's been and what she's done and weaves like footage that was shot for the film itself but also um, footage from her previous films and old photographs like just it's a huge hodgepodge of Varda Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's all presented in such a really seamless interesting and fun way yeah um yeah, it's like a feast for the senses. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I feel like I could watch it over and over again um, and still not entirely know what's going on. Right. No, there's. I'll definitely <laughs> admit to that, that there were instances where I was a little confused, but I didn't mind that so much. Yeah, because she, she throws in these reenactments of her own childhood, um, but she films them in such a way that they're sort of like mini... like mini fiction films almost Mm -hmm. Um, you're sort of transported to her childhood and then suddenly she's standing there watching yeah Um, it's really neat (laughs) yeah she goes I think you mentioned this earlier too with the last film but she goes through a box of old um, like cards at a flea market and comes across um, one for her own film yeah yeah and pulls it out of the box and buys it. I yeah. just love that. <laughs> She's just like, 25 cents for my film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's a, a Harrison Ford cameo all of a sudden. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I was just like, what? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like she was just like, okay, we've got to talk about this, because she auditioned him for a movie or something. Right. And then um, he was told by like someone else in the industry that he should forget about acting. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. Early on, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's that very theatrical kind of moment with the couple having beach on the... Or having beach. Having sex on the <laughs> yeah. beach. 
<laughs> and a fishing net is being closed by like mm-hmm. two actresses and they go shh yeah i love that yeah and pretty much everything does take place on the beach um yeah and she introduces it really in in a way that actually explains a lot of her other work i think she's like if we open people up we'd find landscapes and she's like if we opened me up we find beaches mm-hmm. um but it it helps me make sense of i guess the sense of how important sense of place is to all of her movies and why maybe that is um that it's sort of inseparable from who you are in a way yeah um, wind a ghost just shut the door mm. <laughs> Oh hi, Agnes! No wait, she's not. Dead. She's not dead yet. What am I talking about? <laughs> no, she's actually here. Um, we have her on the show. Surprise. Anyway, <laughs> that would be wild. Yeah, that would that would be funny. I, I just did, started doing um, that for every director. When she was in Chicago, I did stand next to her in a buffet line, oh. but I didn't talk to her because <laughs> I was too afraid. Um, yeah, I, I I understand that. Yeah, at um, University of Chicago, she uh, did a bunch of events, and at a Q&A with her, she was just sort of hanging out with the food beforehand. Oh, cool. And she was right next to me, um, asking her French translator what something was, which, uh, not a translator, maybe just an escort, because she speaks perfect English, <laughs> so that's probably not what it was. That's a hot dog. <laughs> yeah. <Agnes. laughs> that's some gross American food. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, what else? Oh, there's so much in this. I'm trying to think of it all off the top of my head. Well, obviously you mentioned the animated orange cat. Gotta love that. Chris Marker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, again, it's sort of like a... It's like a... It's, I don't, it's a funny to use this expression, but it's like a self-love story that's not self-congratulatory or indulgent. It's really just like peering through her journal and it's all represented visually in a really creative and clever way throughout the entire movie where it's like some of it is staged and like you know you mentioned how almost everything's on the beach like she recreates like her production office on a beach right yeah in the middle of the street or something yeah that's a really interesting image yeah Um, that to me reminded me like something michelle gondry would do yeah, actually, Michelle Gondry occurred to me, too, because there's a part where she's driving a cartoon car, which I yeah. think is something Michelle Gondry has yeah, done in his, yeah. his movies. All those crazy French people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I, I I love this. Like, it's really inspiring to me because I always thought, you know, what, how can, if I ever were to tell my life story, I would love to do it visually. How would I do it without making it, like, this is the me story and mm-hmm. I would want to do it in a less self-indulgent way and playing with form is definitely one way to do it and she does that pretty much throughout the majority of her documentaries I think it's like she'll break the fourth wall she'll admit to an error or she'll have one of her subjects like say hey I, I don't want to film right now I'm trying to take a nap which is my <laughs> favorite part of Uncle Yenko oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but when you have such a remarkable history that's somewhat humorous but heartbreaking and full of incredible stories of what it's like to make these movies, it's hard not to be compelled throughout this entire thing. I mean, when she talks about Jacques Demy and the relationship they had, and she says, like, like all the dead lead back to Jacques. Yeah. That's 
heartbreaking. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. Which makes so much sense. It's like when you think of grieving, you think about the person you grieve the most. Exactly. And you get to feel her feelings throughout this movie, and it's not done through constant interview style directly to the camera. It's she does interesting things like have recreations, like you mentioned, and um, talking over archival footage. Just constant uh, unconventional choices that are never um, predictable. Again, she's very unpredictable with how she presents her material, even when talking about herself. Yeah, it's really exciting to see what she'll do. Um Another thing I really liked, I like about Beaches is the way she sort of uses, um, like, she likes new technology, um, which is something she explores in Gleaner. She's like, this is awesome. We have these little cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do new things with them. And she also does cool things with sort of layering images in this. Oh, yeah. Um, which I guess, I don't know enough about filmmaking, but I'm sure that's like a post-production thing. I would um, think so. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's really neat. Um, she'll layer a photograph she has on top of another photograph um, and just make these like really interesting visual landscapes that... Um, maybe like exist in her brain but she's never or but like this technology gives her a way to show all of that to us mm-hmm. um and then she contrasts that with just sort of building her own vision like right there on the beach <laughs> like yeah just like building these elaborate constructions um like the tre- like the trapeze artists on the beach oh right like she goes to great lengths um to set up these these just like cool things <laughs> yeah they're very elaborate yeah and they must have like taken a lot of work to do which is also cool because you see as she's filming things you can see people like doing like setting up that stuff yeah <laughs> or she'll have completely still shots that would almost be like a photograph of posing mm-hmm. and I, 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 I like just constant surprises you know and it could be it could be so self-indulgent I'm going to make a movie about myself but it never it never feels that way it never comes across that way to me um, I have yet to see her documentary on Jock but I'm imagining it's inc- a very emotional experience yeah. and I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very curious it'd be something I would definitely watch for when I do a Jacques Demi episode yeah definitely to learn more about him gotta emotionally prepare for that have a I lot bet. of tissues handy yeah. <laughs> I bet I bet yeah. No, but I, I, I love I love this movie so much. Now let's talk about some other ones that um, I know that there was a Criterion released Agnes Varda in California box set, which is how I first saw Uncle Yanko. Which, I mean, it's like it, it's maybe twenty minutes long, but it's so good. Mm-hmm. I love. It's like something I would just say, "Hey, people, watch this." You got 20 minutes? Just watch this. <laughs> because, you know, she's researching her family history, and she's visiting, like, her bohemian uncle Yanko, who lives amongst these artists on a pier in San Francisco. Oh, neat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, it's not just about this long-lost relative, 
it's also about her again. So I think that's really, really brave. But she finds a great way to incorporate a cat again. Oh, good. And um, like I said, um, Uncle Yenko at one point like yells out the window as she's holding the camera up to the window. I love you, Agnes, but I... I want to take a nap right now. I don't want to film. <laughs> and she includes that, and it's hilarious, and I love that. Um, yeah, I just... She's really intent on providing the viewer with a reading of interesting objectivity, but also realizing the fact that this is all coming from her in a subjective way. Mm-hmm. So it's like we get to learn about Uncle Yenko. We get to learn about his past. He does talk to the camera. He does things that you would expect in a normal documentary narrative. But she does these interesting little sidetracks. Um, and it, 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 commence, it ends with like this really interesting sequence of like clapperboards and artists wearing Viva La Varda batches. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's just... I want one of those. <laughs> yeah, right? So do I. Um, but, yeah, and she, you know, like, thanks the crew at the very end. I, I don't know. It's just, it's really one of those, it's like a joyful experience. It's not, it, there's a little hint of melancholia here and there, but it's really, like, it put me in such a good mood when I was watching it. I was just like, I love this. This is so much fun. You know, because some, some movies are, like, really emotionally draining. And this is kind of invigorating as you watch it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I didn't, re- I didn't find... Maybe Vagabond was a little overwhelming and draining. But not in a way I would say is bad. It's just... Some films are sad. Mm-hmm. And this isn't one of them. It's really celebratory. So I loved Uncle Yanko. Um, were there other ones that you've seen that you can recall? Man... It's been a while since I saw her shorts. I know I had like a DVD of them. Take that out of context, and people will be like, hmm. I saw her shorts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know right off the top of my head, but I I have seen a bunch of them, but they all sort of blur together. But I'm also thinking now that in her documentaries, her feature-length documentaries are sort of like mini documentaries. There oh, yeah. too. Like, she'll discover something and then go on a tangent about it. She's like, this is too interesting to pass up. Right. I want to document this. Um, like, that, I think it's in Gleaners. There's uh, a couple who owns one of the fields. Um, and he's, like, a psychoanalyst. Oh, yeah. And she was once analyzed by Jacques Lacan. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And she's just like, wow, these, <laughs> these people are interesting. Oh, and then there's one in Beaches, too, where she goes back to her childhood home. Um mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I didn't really connect th- with this like I thought, but I met this guy who collects trains, and that was really interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I like that she just sort of admits to, I need to go on this detour now, follow me. Yeah. You know? And uh, there's there's a, there's a couple more straightforward ones, like the Black Panther's one that's in the California box set that is just presenting one of their rallies that's very straightforward. It's still capturing a time and place that's really fascinating. I, uh, I want to see that one really badly. Yeah. There, that's, I should have just lent you that box set. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so damn good. Um, there's, there's a lot... There's still a lot that we have to watch that I'm excited to watch. Like, what are, what are some other... Like, the one I mentioned to you, One Sings, The Other One Doesn't. You've seen that, right? I have seen One Sings, The Other One Doesn't. Um, it's definitely definitely cool um it didn't 
Uh, I didn't respond to it the way I've responded to some of her movies, but if I watched it again, I wonder if that wouldn't if that would change. Um, it's it's kind of a musical, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, there's musical numbers, and it's one of all of her movies have a feminist perspective, but this one. Oh, yeah. Um, coming like right at the height, I think, of the feminist movement. This one's a lot more overt, um, and it sort of speaks directly to the feminist movement. So I think mm. it's definitely a cool movie to see. Um, it's loosely just about two friends, um, and abortion is a central theme. And I remember singing on a boat, <laughs> and the girl's character's name is Apple. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so maybe that's where Gwyneth Paltrow and maybe. Chris Martin got the inspiration. Yeah, maybe it's not uh, as random as we all thought. Right. And then she actually follows one of the characters in that movie in a short film as well, hmm. um, which is really pretty, and I think shot somewhere in the Middle East, and just sort of focuses on a lot of mosaics, like beautiful mosaics, yeah. and. It's actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it sort of reminds me of La Pointe Court, where it's about, it's sort of like a love story, <laughs> but then in the background is just all this beautiful imagery um, that paints a picture of the place they're in. And that's that's not a documentary short, but hmm. it's a really pretty little short. Yeah, she's got a number of those, and you know, some aren't readily available, like the, the one sings, the other one doesn't, it's not readily available. Was there one, there was one with Catherine Deneuve? Yeah, um, the creatures. Yeah. <laughs> um, which all I know about it is that she plays a mute woman, um, or she's become recently become mute after an accident. Um, but with the combination of Varda and Deneuve, that was just something I feel like I need to I need to track I know, down. Right? <laughs> um, and I haven't found a way to do that but maybe maybe out obsession has it i don't know i haven't hmm. looked that's a good point yeah they sometimes have the things that i can't find anywhere else right i'll i'll try to look for that one too there's so much still i mean i know she she did a collaborative one with a bunch of directors called far from vietnam um don't know too much about it i know that godard is also co-directing on that one so i'm assuming that's just more of a documentary kind of perspective on what was taking place there um there's a couple others that i can't think of off the top of my head but kung fu master with kung fu master yeah that's the other one yeah and now i can't remember what that's supposed to be about but i also really want to see that yeah it's it's unfortunate that like you can probably i don't know this for sure and i'm sure a bunch of you can correct me on this (laughs) <laughs> but the majority of Godard films are readily available, whereas, like, there are some missing pieces from Varda's filmography that deserve a re-release or some or more attention or just be more readily available through streaming or other yeah. means. Mm-hmm. That it's unfortunately that it's not the case. Obviously, Criterion is doing their their best work with, you know, some of her stronger narrative films, for sure, and... I highly recommend the California box set that, um, in terms of her documentary work, it's a lot of them are short films. There's a couple of feature length ones on there too. So it's, it's, I hadn't get a chance to watch all of them. I just watched, um, uncle Yanko and the black Panthers one, but it was documentor on that. I think so. Uh, yeah. I really want to see that one also. Yeah. Um, 
We'll get to it. In fact, yeah. <laughs> we will have an Agnes Varda Part 2 if we can track down some of these more obscure titles. For sure. Because I, I'm smitten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to have discovered her. I mean, I feel like it's sad that it's not, even with the podcast, even if you look at all the archives, it's not equal women and, ma- you know, female and male directors. And that's, it's sad. <laughs> and it's not even, like, by choice. It's just, it's more of just the fact that there are predominantly more male directors in the industry. Yeah. You know, and that's unfortunate, but... <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure how things work in France. Um, I know in the U.S., women just aren't given equal opportunities. Right. And I'm, like, I'm not sure how financing works in France... So maybe that's not quite as true there. <laughs> but <laughs> No, I wouldn't think so. But at the same time there's there's a lot of a lot of names I want to get to in terms of notable female directors. But you know, I would the fact that at least Jane Campion, Claire Denis, Kelly Reichardt, and now Agnes Varda, I would all consider to be among some of the best directors I've covered on the show and favorites of mine personally says a lot mm-hmm. about their work and it's every bit as significant as a Scorsese or Hitchcock in my opinion mm-hmm. so that's why I wish people would just give it more of a chance it's like even the Claire Denis episode is so it's low in terms of the numbers oh, and I'm just really? kind of like I mean maybe it's just interest level I mean obviously Scorsese or Paul Thomas Anderson is going to get way more downloads but I wish it was again I'm just sort of trumpet for equality. Yeah, this is what... <laughs> Even with downloads. A lot of, like, the uh, female uh, friend, or heroes of um, film are French, and it makes me wonder if they're doing something differently over there. Yeah. Um, hmm. Except, I mean, I guess, like, people aren't paying as much attention to Claire Denis over here, <laughs> but um, Claire Denis and Agnes Varda, both huge names. Um, Thank goodness. Well, I guess Chantal Ackerman isn't strictly French. She's Belgian, I guess. Um, But, yeah, it's just... I wonder why it's not quite the same over here. Or there's not... We don't really have... Well, we have Kelly Reichert, um, but... Is that how you say it, Reichert? I'm not really sure. (laughs) Okay. I should probably look it up on YouTube or something. And it's not because we don't have the talent it's just because i think maybe money is a is a bigger factor in the u.s than it might be in europe um at least or that there's sort of a history and culture of paying attention to art film that maybe there isn't always here mm-hmm. i'm not sure what it is but i wish that more or they there were more opportunities for women to direct in the u.s yeah, there should be because they clearly they they bring a lot to the table with the names I mentioned and so many more. I, I I respond to their work sometimes even more strongly than some work by by male directors because they are a lot like one of the strengths of of, of Varda is that her willingness to be vulnerable on camera and through stories. It's just like you can tell. 
that, you know, her true love clearly was Jacques Demy, mm-hmm. but it's also cinema. Like, she yeah. outright says that at the end of Beaches of Agnes, like, cinema is my home. And I was like, oh, man, that just that just warms my heart. Yeah. You know, like her movie lover's hut. Oh, yeah, I With love all the that. film strips. I would love to to experience that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> she did have some of her um, installations at Chicago when she was here, which was oh, fantastic to see. I bet. Yeah, and it really sort of informs her film work. Yeah, I think I think it's important to remember that she's not strictly a filmmaker and she right. has so much other work that is really amazing as well. Yeah, need to explore more. <laughs> you know, I mean that's the thing is like pretty much I mean there's so many names to get through too, but I get just as excited about an Agnes Varda part 2 episode in a year or a two years and it's just because like once you discover something the sense of discovery excites you to see more learn more um read a book on her even it's just she's she's a true master of cinema and i just sure i'm late to the party but i'm so glad that i'm at least there now finally Mm -hmm. and you know I, i was just so taken with her her hut as yeah. you know, it's like you can tell that she has a true love for the art form, and her contributions to cinema are immeasurable at this point. It's like there's, there. I mean, you can say like, "Oh, Breathless has started the French New Wave movement," or whatever. You know, like other titles of that era. But really, I think we, at this point, I think enough scholars have cited her as the godmother mm-hmm. of that movement. So, I'm officially a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thankfully, it's, I'm here now, and I'm excited to see as much as I can. Yeah, I hope I hope she comes out with another another movie someday. I'm she said sure. she's retired. Oh, <laughs> but a lot of people say that. Yeah. Nowadays, musicians and filmmakers like, oh, I'm done, and then they come back, and you know, maybe there'll be a reunion tour with with Agnes Varda. Yeah, good stuff. What would be your top three choices? Oh, no. Did you prepare for that? <gasps> I didn't prepare for this. Oh, no! Um, I know, it's always that's challenging. Actually, it's very hard. now Because they're all actually like very, very different. Um, right? I think... I actually think... I don't know if I can order them, but I can give you three, maybe. Um, that's cool. <laughs> Gleaners is one of the top three. Um, I just really respond deeply to something in Gleaners. And it's not just, it's also, it's the stuff about her, but also, um, as a documentary, uh, the idea of, of gleaning things that are left behind, I think is a really important, like environmental and social message. Yeah. And I think she has a lot of that running through her work. Um, but it's sort of, I think in Gleaners, she has a chance to really explore that. Yeah. Um, and it's really... It's really inspirational to me. It makes me want to like waste less. <laughs> so, on top of on top of all the other like artistic and emotional things, I respond to that about it. Um, and then I think Vagabond is also in my top three, um, just because the character of Mona is so sort of like inimitable, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it's just a beautiful movie beautiful and chaotic and 
and strange, um, sort of unlike anything else. And let me see, what would the third spot go to out of the ones I've seen? Um, I think Cleo. <laughs> That's yeah. a good jumping off point, because that would be... It's tough to... You're right, it is tough to rank them. Like, I'm, I'm not even a stickler about that stuff. I mean, I always ask people, what are your top three or what are your top five? I mean, you can even do five if you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be that picky about it. Um, but, yeah, no, Cleo is probably my favorite right now. Probably. Um, just because it was the first one that sort of blindsided me and made me appreciate French New Wave in a whole different way. Where it was very... It was a combination of joy and melancholy, but also uh, I don't know. It's 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 one of those that like it's an existential experience that's hard to put into words when I'm watching it. It's like mm-hmm. I'm feeling so much as I watch this. Yeah, and I feel like I felt and thought so much about it that I didn't have time to say. Also, <laughs> yeah, I know that's that's exactly it. It's like I'm sure I'll think of other things I can bring up with it after this is out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and then people email you about it. Sure, I don't <laughs> mind that. I hope they do because uh, I, I encourage people to email me at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com because I learn a lot from the emails too. And I think number two for me would be Vagabond for all the reasons we've discussed as it being unlike anything. It's it's one of the most original films I've ever seen, and yet I could see its influence like on something like Bernie, where it's part narrative feature slash true story slash documentary with people talking giving interviews into the camera so it makes me appreciate that more and more that sort of approach um and then i gotta go with uh with the beaches of agnes is probably my number three because it is like a it's like an autobiography Mm -hmm. done visually like i know a lot of people say oh you can you just go read a book go read a book on her you know, and I've I've heard that argument, but this 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 makes the argument for why the documentary Melu is so important and vital. And like I said, if other directors that I love turn the camera on themselves and made something formally interesting that is got a sense of humor that you know is self reflective, then I would be a hundred percent on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think there's something to be said about uh, an autobiography that's visual. If you're like a visual, if you're a filmmaker, you work in the visual, and sure. I feel like maybe that's the only way she can really do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, most most people nowadays, including celebrities and filmmakers, they write they write memoirs, but I don't know. Like, I want to get. I want to get the inflections. I want to get the little nuances. And maybe it's just like I have a preference for learning things visually. Mm-hmm. I like to read. Don't get me wrong. But there's some instances, and I think Beaches of Agnes makes the argument for it. Sometimes the visual representation is more powerful than the written word. Others may disagree. But yeah. I, I sometimes find myself, and I even mentioned this like in an interview I did recently, with supporting characters, uh, a podcast that's coming out soon, where going to the movies is like my version of church, where I feel I feel that spiritual connection that I wish I felt at church, but 
I, I feel that way when I'm a personal experience done by a filmmaker or a bunch of people that obviously worked on the film um, is presented to me and I get to obviously project myself into the experience but I also learn about people in a way that I don't necessarily get out of church <laughs> mm-hmm. I get to learn about the human experience a lot more through movies than I do through someone preaching at me mm-hmm. I know not every church experience is like that don't get me wrong I'm not anti-religion don't think that <laughs> <laughs> but it's just that I have a preference and watching movies I get I get a thrill out of it that I'm grateful for and I'm sure you feel that same way I mean there's many instances I'm sure you go to the music box and see something mm-hmm. you're just like wow I yeah. feel connected to the world again <laughs> definitely I mean I was I'm not super religious now but I was raised in church mm-hmm. um, and um, I think like one of the reasons the ways that our church that you like sort of connected to God was through singing um, yeah, like music and I think I think there's a way that um, art forms, all kinds of art forms, really help you feel spiritual, um, even if it's not God that you're trying right. to connect with. Um, and I think Agnes Bard understands that, too. <laughs> like, oh, definitely. She worships um, all these art forms and makes us sort of see what she sees. It's really a really beautiful experience to watch or to see art through her eyes. it's like you want to chime in yeah Ira's here (laughs) (laughs) Ira's just kind of like looking at us hoping are they going to stop talking and looking at each other or looking at a screen or looking into these microphones are they going to eventually acknowledge me play with me poor Ira were you named after Ira Glass Ira um, Ira Kaplan from Yellow Tango. Oh, God. Well, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. That's even better. It's funny. Ira Glass, I think, is going to be at the Music Box because he's a producer on um, a film called Don't Look... No, I forgot what it's called. Don't Think Twice, maybe? It's the new Mike Birbiglia movie about improv mm, okay. comedy. It looks pretty funny. It looks It looks really good. But, yeah, that's kind of a random thing when I, when I was watching um, Tickled at the Music Box I saw like Ira well, Glass because he's the producer what's he going to have to say I don't know <laughs> but anyway he puts on a great show obviously on NPR not to badmouth him in any way Tickled was an interesting movie I had issues with it but it's it's an interesting documentary that's I don't know how I feel about it but I also don't like the fact that they incorporated the score from one of my favorite movies, Upstream Color, mm-hmm. into the movie to where it took me out of the movie because oh, that's weird. I was just like, what? Why? Why is this in here? Don't put this in here because I automatically think of the movie that I love, as opposed to being immersed into the story. I don't think everybody has that experience because they haven't seen Upstream Color, but still, it's personal choice that I wouldn't have included. <laughs> that reminds me of um. And a Renier movie, Wild Grass, that I saw like when I first moved here. For some reason, in that movie, he uses the X Files soundtrack, and it's really bizarre. <laughs> and really, yeah, and like, 
I know it's probably you're not you're meant to know what that is because I think it's enough. It's in the cultural lexicon. Yeah, people know what the X Files music is. Well, I don't. I don't know if it was that one or just. It was very strange, <laughs> but anyway. What was that movie? Um, Wild Grass. Wild Grass. Okay, I'll look that up. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> well, Tarantino does that all the time, but it's it's no big deal. To some people, anyway. Well, thank you again, Kate, for being on the show. This was so much fun, as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, we're going to have to do this again in the near future. Um, I knew Fellini came to mind at one point, because I know Eight and a Half is a huge movie for you. But, um, yeah, uh, you're welcome back anytime, obviously. I know scheduling can be tricky, (laughs) (laughs) as we are adults and all, but I'm grateful for any time we get to talk cinema. Yeah, same here. It's very enlightening. Yeah. So is your blog still up and running? And I know you're on Letterboxd too now. I'm on, yeah, I just joined Letterboxd, um, which is awesome. Yeah. I encourage everyone to join it. And also, there's just so many random people on there saying brilliant things about movies. Right. And they're just totally random strangers. (laughs) There's also all the big critics are on there. But yeah, I love Letterboxd. So I'm doing that. I'm still writing some reviews for Tiny Mixtapes. Oh, cool. Um, blogging when I can. Selective Just, viewing? Mm, selectiveviewing.com. Nice. Well, thanks again. Stay tuned, everyone, because we got two more episodes coming as we transition into August. I might have overbooked for this month, but that means you get more content, so hopefully you're happy with that. And if you're not, I'm sorry for overwhelming your RSS feeds and podcast uh, catchers or whatever you call them. Yeah, podcatchers. Podcatchers. Yeah, so in the next two episodes we got coming up include Alex Cox, director of Repo Man and Sid and Nancy, as well as action director James Cameron, who has made films that you've probably never heard of before in your life, like Titanic and Avatar, both of which I saw once in the theater and I haven't seen them since, hmm. but I think I will rewatch them with an open mind because I honestly think that once the Titanic hits the iceberg it's one hell of a movie if I remember oh yeah I, I'm i not like a big James Cameron fan but the 10 year old girl in me is always going to love Titanic sure no I can totally understand that and when yeah and like I think well maybe I should save it so you guys can talk about that no go ahead I don't mind um, I just love how the the ship sort of sinks in real time like once the iceberg yeah. hits and it's very very exciting. It's very visceral. <laughs> like yeah. you're on your edge of your seat that whole time. It turns into Terminator, basically. Mm-hmm. It turns into a full-blown kind of action set piece, one after the other, once the iceberg hits. So I'm going to watch that on Blu-ray pretty soon and see how I respond to it. I'll watch the whole thing, of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Terminator movies. Um, the Abyss I haven't seen in a long time, so I'm interested for that one. But I, I, I would I would say I'm 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 a minor fan of James Cameron. I don't like True Lies very much, but um, you know that's that's kind of what also what's the joy of doing this podcast is rewatching, and maybe you'll have a completely different reaction than you did ten years ago. So um, that's fun. Who are you talking about James Cameron with? Um, my former. Well, not not my. What am I saying? My former. Um, the guy who was just on for the 1986 episode, Eric Childress. And he's, um, you know, he's kind of, I don't want to put him in a box and say he's mainstream blockbuster kind of guy, but, you know, his favorite director is Steven Spielberg. Which is totally fine. (laughs) 
I have no qualms with that. Um, but yeah, he he tends to lean more towards like your Robert Zemeckis, your Christopher Nolan, the the guys who do good spectacle mm-hmm. kind of cinema. So yeah, I can get behind that. Yeah, and you know he's the uh, host of uh, Movie Madness, which you can find at NowPlayingNetwork.net, along with supporting characters, Tracks of the Damned, uh, hosted by my former co-host Patrick Rapole. And a number of other great shows like Vinyl Emergency and Fresh Perspective. This show and Pop Culture Club. So nowplayingnetwork.net and directorsclubpodcast.com is where you can find me and send me an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And on this wonderful, windy day, <laughs> thanks again, Kate, for being on the show. Well, thank you, Jen. All right. We'll talk to you again and thanks, soon. thanks, Agnes Sparta. <laughs> and thanks, you, thank you, Agnes, <laughs> for, for listening and for putting out all your amazing movies. <laughs> <laughs>